Would you turn in a Bible, if you've got one, or find one to 1 Kings chapter 19? 1 Kings chapter 19. As you're turning there, a couple of things. First, I want to introduce myself. My name is Lance. If we haven't got a chance to meet, I serve as one of the pastors here, and I am going to consider the Bible together with you here over the next number of moments. Second, you may be wondering why we're turning to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're turning to 1 Kings chapter 19 because we've spent the summer, the last number of months, retelling, and perhaps for the first time, or so I shouldn't say retelling, or telling the story of the people of God. The question is, what is God's plan for his people, specifically ethnic Israel? What is their future? Where will they land? Is there hope for them? Is this hardness of heart or this hardening that has taken place in the people of God, is this going to be, be consistent and stay in an ongoing way, or is there some sort of plan? And so, if you've been paying attention the last number of weeks, we've walked through, in many ways, an overview of the Old Testament, the story of all of God's faithfulness in His foundational covenant with His people. We heard about Abraham, the father of many nations, who was promised to have an inheritance and to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's a lot of families. And Abraham was promised to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. We heard about Moses. And how Moses was called to be a rescuer, to demonstrate God's ability to redeem and to pull people out of slavery. We also began to become acquainted with an Israel who is often wayward. Though they have the commitment of God as a rescuer and a redeemer, though they have his very word and his rule and his leadership, they're often very, very stubborn. We've seen that God is faithful to his promise and at times he even levels cities so that Israel, his people, could inherit the land. They eventually set up a nation state. They begin to cry out for, and they have kings like other nations have. And some of that goes well. David is a man after God's own heart and is promised that there will be a a king on the throne in his line forever. However, temporally speaking, this kingship does not go well. Last week, we saw that in Solomon's life, at the pinnacle of when everything should have been peachy keen, everything was going to just sail off into the sunset. The temple is there gleaming, it's shining. Solomon, the ruler and the leader of God's people, prays in such a wonderful way, and you'd think everything would be great, but his heart is is compromised. He forgets that what God cares about most is uncompromised worship from the heart, and so God promises that there would be punishment to the nation of Israel. No longer would there be a unified king, no more Saul than David than Solomon. Instead, Israel would split, and there will be a long history of kings who are not faithful. As we've turned a few pages right now to 1 Kings chapter 19, just a few pages in the Bible, a lot of history has gone by, and much of it is a kind of sordid history. There are more or less around 10, ten kings, ten, <laughs> sounded southern, 10 kings since the life of Solomon. And whether you like it or not, God is faithful to his promises. There has been conflict and tension. Israel is split into two, and nearly every king who has ruled in these places has been compromised. They've done evil, they've forgotten the law of God. And where we come to now in 1 Kings chapter 19, much like we did with Solomon, I'm going to start at the end. We're going to start with a, how did it end up like this kind of moment and then retell the story of Elijah. We're going to tell the story of Elijah to realize that Israel 
had a difficult history with human rulers, and if the theme of the kings of the Old Testament is essentially, we need a better king, we're going to need to be ruled eternally in a better way. If that's the theme of the Old Testament in many ways as it comes to rulership, the question becomes, well, what is Israel's relationship, the people of God's relationship with his word? The prophets were always faithful to bring about or to say, this is who God is and what he wants. The question becomes, what have they done with the prophets? And much like the other parts of their faithfulness to God, it is a very difficult history, not great. So let's pick up the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah's going to have some highlights. You might know those. You're going to have some highlights. But let's pick up the story of Elijah, and where he starts, he's in a not good spot. It's going to start out, and the first few words that we're going to read is that he's in a cave. The cave is his house. He's staying there, damp. Dark, doesn't know where meals are going to come, he's fearful. That's where we're starting the story of Elijah. And then we're going to ask the same question we asked with Solomon, how do we end up here? And what should we learn? So, 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 9. There he, this is Elijah, he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahalah, Abel-Mahalah, it's hard to say, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I would love to take a moment and just pause there. Let's pray together. God, you've taught us to pray to address you as our Heavenly Father. And in many ways, we are so grateful for the routines that you've given us. Thank you for the routine of gathering in your presence, the routine of being with family. We thank you for the routine of remembering your faithfulness. You are always the same. You never change. This morning, new mercy. Right now, present by your Spirit, your plan for us as solid and sure as, sure as ever. Thank you 
for these blessed routines, things that we can count on. God, we also recognize the potential for us to go things, uh, go about things by rote. We don't want to miss or to pray just because we should or it's the thing we do. God, we pray to you today because we're needy, because this word is living and active and it should be alive in us, but we can tell, we can just sense the likelihood that it's going to be stale because we're distracted. God, I pray especially for those who have gathered here this morning and they are hurting or feel in the fog because of suffering or pain or questions. Would you remind us again, remind those who are suffering and hurting again that you can heal, you can redeem, that you are present and ready to receive? God, we've come satisfied by things of our own doing. We've been filled up in other ways, at other places, and so I pray you'd make us hungry again, give us thirst. Please, Spirit of God, move in us in a fresh way so that we do not miss these moments. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Elijah is one of the most powerful, God-fearing, successful prophets in all the story of the Old Testament. And yet, in one of the most meaningful moments of his whole life, as we just read, he feels completely abandoned, undone. He feels fearful for his life. He's saying things that are true about Israel. This is your people, he says to God. Here's what they do. They forsake your covenant. They throw down your altars. They kill all of your prophets, and they're coming to me. In fact, not just them. He could even add in here the rulers, the very leaders. This isn't just the the sideline scum of Israel, right? This isn't some shady characters who are always the rebels. This is the very establishment have rejected the word of God. And how does Elijah end up here? How is it the people of God have any hope? There's going to be this constant tension throughout the whole Old Testament. How can they have any hope if they act like this? There's an interesting thing that God does here. He meets Elijah in the midst of his very true, real concerns. He doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, oh, Elijah, stop being dramatic. They haven't forsaken the covenant. Well, because they have. They haven't torn down the altars because that's exactly what they did. He doesn't say, well, they didn't just kill the prophets with a sword. No, they kind of murdered them. But instead, the Lord wants to teach Elijah something about himself, especially as it relates to the worst of circumstances with God's people. There are going to be some things that God wants to teach Elijah about how he can sustain his people in the midst of difficulty. And the two main words I think that are going to be lessons of Elijah's life are essentially going to be these twofold things. The provision of God. So that's going to be a word we're going to think about, provision of God. And then secondarily, we're going to think about God's ability to preserve, his preserving power. So the provision of God and the preserving power, I believe, are the themes of Elijah's life. And they're going to come to fruition, I think, in this text. But in order to land here, we're going to back up and we're going to retell some of his story. 
is Elijah's charge to God about the people of Israel, is it true? I mean, that's the first thing to investigate. Is it true? What he complains about, not once, but twice, it's recorded twice for us in 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings chapter 19, twice for us. Is it true? The reality is, yes, it's true. There have been 10 wayward kings, more or less, since the time of Solomon. The temple is certainly not being used in the ways that it was commissioned for or imagined. God's word has been neglected. His prophets have been scattered. It's gone to the point where a faithful man, Obadiah, not the same Obadiah for the writer of the Bible. Obadiah is a common Old Testament name. It meant servant of Yahweh. So a different faithful Obadiah sees that Jezebel, who has the ear of the king, she's really the ruler of Israel, that she is systematically killing all the prophets of God. She is essentially Darth Vader. She's identified the Jedis. And she is going throughout the universe, killing them all. So Obadiah has to take a hundred of the prophets and he goes and shoves them in caves. So one of the first things we should think is this is probably not the first time that Elijah has had to live out his days in a cave. He knows the smell well. He knows the pain and the sort of desperation well. And it's in this situation with Ahab ruling as the king of Israel, but really ruled by Jezebel, where the triune God of Israel has been replaced by prophets of Baal as well as other prophets, where altars have been erected where worship of God should have taken place, that Elijah steps onto the scene. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, we have this rather abrupt instance of Elijah being pressed forward to show God's faithfulness that he speaks to his people even in these difficult times. Elijah is going to step forward And it tells us this in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's a harsh statement. In today's words of the economy, uh, he would have predicted, in fact, said by God's own character and the fact that he lives, he would have predicted a bear market. Says to him, look, Ahab, here's the deal. Whatever you've been enjoying, it's going to go away because more than we would fear a recession or a drought, this nation would have feared a recession or a depression. This nation would have feared a drought. If rain doesn't come, if there's no dew or rain, then everything is going to grind to a halt. There will be desperation and starvation. And Elijah now, bringing the word of God, comes forward to Ahab the ruler and says a very harsh word, just so you know, we're going to halt the rain. It's no wonder that Ahab had a nickname for Elijah. You know Elijah had a nickname? You might think, Eli? Ejah? Or Edog? Or what was his nickname? You know what his nickname was according to Ahab? Troubler of Israel. Ah, it's the troubler of Israel. The rabble-rouser. My guess is that Elijah likely, given the condition of the nation and Ahab himself, he probably wore this as a badge of honor. You ever been given a a nickname and you thought to yourself, yeah, that's right. He was a troublemaker of Israel. And let me tell you, it is a bad circumstance when you have been so twisted and turned inside out where the truth and the word of God comes and you view it as a trouble. You ever been there? 
Scripture tells you the truth, someone prays the truth, someone invites you to the truth, and you just say to yourself, stay away. I don't want to hear it. I have a convenient little thing going over here. Please don't interrupt me with God's word. You see, a call to righteousness can be very inconvenient when we've carved out a life of idolatry. And so Elijah serves his role, a rightful role, as a troublemaker. He's the troubler of Israel by calling them back to God, and he's going to put them in a circumstance where they will have no provision. You see, Ahab has likely forgotten that it is God who brings rain. He's likely forgotten. They believe that they are self-sustaining. And so Elijah's job is to put them in a position where they will need to realize as the people of God that they must have provision. So imagine the boldness this takes. Elijah knows that there's been a series, a track record of prophets being murdered in the streets. And yet he steps forward and he gives a very difficult message, a message of rebuke to Ahab who's ruling. So what's going to happen? Well, we're going to read again now in verse 2 of 1 Kings 17. It says, another word of the Lord came to him. So a word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. I'm sure he saw this as a relief. God says, you should probably lay low for a while. Go hide yourself. This is not the cave that he's in in chapter 19. So again, he's acquainted with this kind of life. Verse 4, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. We'll pause there and say, what lesson are we being taught in the life of Elijah? Essentially, that in the most difficult of circumstances, when he is fearing from his life and he has to run and he has no provision, even if he wanted provision, there's a drought in the land because he just commanded it. God provides. I saw a video once where a man was very proud and it went viral in whatever ways things go viral. I saw a video once of a dog that would bring a man a beer. You ever seen a video of the beer-bringing dog? Go to the fridge. He goes over. I'm sure this dog, you know, in a, in a more rightful circumstance, would have been trained as a helper dog for someone who was, you know, in difficult circumstances. This guy was just thirsty. It was pretty amazing. He sends a dog off and brings him something to drink. Well, Elijah's opportunity here, had he only had his iPhone, he could have gone unbelievably viral because the provision of God comes in an unbelievable way. He has a breakfast-bringing raven. He has a dinner-making bird that comes every day. The ravens just come and just drop him food. God is saying in the most clear terms, you couldn't come up with it any other way. I'm in control here, no matter how bleak or how difficult or how much of a drought, I can provide. And I want you to note the contrast. Elijah is being provided for because God can make insane things happen. He controls even the birds of the air. Elijah is being provided for, and all the while God's people, because they've rejected him, are experiencing drought and have nothing. The picture here in Elijah's life is essentially this. God is the one who provides and God will provide. So long 
as we rest on him, so long as we trust him. The provision of God is coming to Elijah to sustain his life, and it's in direct contrast to the way that God is being faithful to Elijah's warning that no rain is going to come. And in fact, no rain does come. The land becomes desperate. Things are difficult. Just long enough for Elijah to get the attention of God's people. It tells us in chapter 18, which I'm going to summarize, because my guess is that most of you know it as the most popular section of his life, that after many days, after much time, Elijah has been forced to go from place to place. He's provided for first by ravens, then later miraculously by a widow and her son. And finally, he goes back to confront Ahab in the midst of this drought. And he sets up a royal rumble. He sets up a final meeting place. So if Israel, if God's people are thinking that it's Baal that provides this false god, then Ahab is going to provide them with a very obvious example that that is not true. This is the main event at Mount Carmel. I heard this last week or a couple weeks ago that there was a WWE event in Tallahassee. I don't know if anybody went to that or if you're into these kind of things. You know, it's wrestling. Or, and, no, sorry, it's people pretending to wrestle is uh, what it is, right? That's there. I, I told people once that I was super, super into wrestling, professional wrestling, and then I had my eighth birthday, and I didn't... Is that too mean, you think? I don't mean to denigrate. So it's entertainment, and obviously they do an amazing job of entertainment. It's a huge, multi-billion dollar business. And that main event, this big fight thing, came to Tallahassee this last couple weeks. And you could imagine that the tension and all the buildup of this was probably what the buzz was in Israel as everyone is gathering at Mount Carmel. This is going to be the main event. It's the Royal Rumble. And Elijah goes up there and he says to all of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah who've also gathered, they say, we're going to have a little contest here. We're going to have a contest of power. They're going to set up this contest and here's what will take place. There'll be an altar set up with an offering on it. Now, normally a burnt offering, you know, would have been a common thing, but here's what will not be normal. We will set no fire to it. So everything's set in place. Altar, offering, but no fire. And I want you, your whole group, do whatever you can to call down fire from heaven and show that Baal is in charge of the elements, that if Baal can send fire, then he can surely bring rain on this drought. If he can provide and if he's powerful, then let him do so. And so you know the story, right? They set the thing up. It's all there and everyone is around. And they begin in the morning and Baal's prophets begin to pray. Now, I like to imagine them slowly ramping up, slowly getting more desperate. Like, they might start out trying to be all cool, and they just say something simple like, Baal, send fire. And then when it doesn't work, they eventually have to start to work themselves into some incantations. And they're like, no, maybe we need that song with the round. And they got like a hundred of the prophets singing one part of it. You know what I mean? It just gets bigger and bigger. Then they start bringing out the fire dances, and not just the normal fire dances. They got prophets doing the worm next to it. Yeah, they're just everything they can to get the attention of Baal, and it's just not working. And the only reason I feel comfortable saying, making a ridiculous scene out of this is because Elijah himself gets a little tickled. He's just a little bit amused by this whole thing. And it tells us by midday that Elijah himself steps forward and begins to mock them. 
Remember the first time I heard this story, I just, I thought the Bible was so wonderful. This is one of those times when I thought all the people who say the Bible is boring have never really read it. They just don't get it. Because Elijah steps forward and he begins to publicly mock. Imagine the, the, just the courage of this man. Publicly mocking these hundreds of false prophets. He says, well, just cry out loud. He's a God. But you know what? It's fine. He may be musing. That's the word that's uh, in the ASV. He's musing. He's just entertained. In other words, maybe, I remember at the time that I maybe would have heard about this for the first time. You know what? He probably can't miss MacGyver. So just let him finish his show. He's watching TV or something. He's amused. Or perhaps the most amazing one, perhaps he's using the bathroom. He's just in the bathroom. Having a hard time. I'm sure he'll be here at a certain point. Maybe he's gone or asleep and you have to yell louder to wake him up. Elijah's getting a kick out of the fact that they cannot make this happen. It gets so desperate for the prophets of Baal that eventually they take out swords and lances and they begin to offer blood sacrifices to Baal, essentially their own blood saying, please hear us, send fire. And nothing happens. So Elijah who wants to not miss this moment. Everyone's there. Who wants to make the point that God can bring about provision even when all other things seem impossible. He says, you know what? I'll step forward, but it's not going to be enough to simply bring fire on this normal altar with a normal offering on it. Here's what I'd like you to do. Dig a little trench around it and then bring buckets of water. And I want you on this wood and on this offering to just soak it. Dump the whole thing on there. Just soak it. Now, I don't know about you, but you've ever tried to start a fire with wet wood? It's misery. It's smoking. It's terrible. I'd like to think that I was better than that, but in those kind of circumstances, I just cheat. I just find the nearest gasoline or whatever it would be. You just have to get through it. Starting a fire in a wet circumstance is very, very, very difficult. And this is the point that Elijah wants to make. He does it once, and then he says, you know what? It's not wet enough. Do it again. More buckets. In fact, after that, why don't you bring more jars and do it a third time? It gets to the point where the entire altar is just saturated down to the bottom. There's a moat around the bottom of the thing filled with water. And it's in this circumstance where we pick up the reading in 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 36. 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 36, says this. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. We'll stop reading because here's where the Old Testament ends. And Israel is perfectly faithful from this day forward. God finally provided the miracle that they all needed. And every ruler never again doubted. They only followed the word of God from here after. Now why is that an ironic thing to say? Because 
The story of Elijah is going to be very much like the story of God's people. The lessons will be similar. Despite everything seeming like it worked out here, everything's perfect, God's people still have a tension and a battle with faithfulness. They still are going to deal with unfaithfulness to the covenant. They still are going to want a leader and a ruler that is not God himself. They're still going to struggle with hearing the word of God and keeping his commands. In fact, you'd think that at the end of this scene, that Elijah is lifted up on shoulders. They throw one of those parades like the, like the NBA champion has down the streets of a city. But instead, word gets back to Ahab and Jezebel that Elijah has done this, and they send out their fastest ship to seek him out and destroy him. And I think there's something profound and amazing that right after 1 Kings 18, in all these moments where you think, finally, it's just over, they'll figure it out. It's, intri- it's very intriguing in a very much like a Solomon kind of way that one of the next things that we find is Elijah in a cave, fearing for his life, wondering where provision's going to come from, complaining to God that Israel again, his people, can, they just rejected the covenant and they killed the prophets and they're coming for my life. So we're back now to the passage that we started with, 1 Kings 19. The question becomes, what is God trying to teach Elijah and therefore his people? What is he trying to teach us through these stories? What does it mean that there in response to this prayer, that the Lord passes by the cave and there is a mighty wind that tears rocks from the sides? There was a whole section of Zion National Park that was shut down when we were there. They wouldn't let anybody go in there because of massive rocks, thousand-ton rocks that had fallen down from it. These are powerful forces. And the text says that this happened and the Lord passes by, but he's not in the wind. What does that mean? What does it mean that there's an earthquake? God causes earthquakes and he's in them. Sometimes Jesus raises from the dead. The earth shakes. But here it says that there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that, there's a fire. He just came down in fire, but he's not in this fire. He wants Elijah to trust something different. I think something deeper, something quieter. There's a low whisper, and there is God's voice. And the thing that he answers is not an objection. He doesn't say, oh, stop being dramatic, Elijah. It's not that bad. People, he knows it's that bad, but he wants to teach Elijah The same lesson he's been teaching the prophets of Baal and Ahab and all of God's people, that is, is that I am able to provide. I can provide for your life. I can protect you and keep you. And more than that, this phrase in verse 18 of 1 Kings 19, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here's what God wants Elijah to learn. It is not up to Elijah as a prophet to keep God's people faithful. It is not up to a king to ensure by his iron fist of rule that God's people will be faithful and sustain, that it is God himself and only God's mercy and his prerogative that will cause his people to be preserved. And I'm sure that Elijah, by this double-fold lesson, okay, you're not in the big, fancy, loud wind, and you're not in the shaking of the earth, and you're not in the fire and its glow. You're in the quietness of a whisper, And there are 7,000 in Israel who have remained faithful. 
Maybe Elijah would have thought something like this, uh, where were they when my neck was on the line? What do you mean 7,000 faithful? Why didn't you give them swords? Where were their social media posts? Didn't they protest? Weren't they loud? Didn't they bring big signs? All, point, all signs are pointing to the fact that everything is lost and God is absent. And God steps in in a whisper just to say, I want you to remember that even the smallest whisper from me is strong enough to sustain thousands. And my plans will not be disturbed. Everything looks bleak, but it's not as bad as you think because I can provide and I have a quiet faithful that will be sustained. Many people see a correlation between this statement of God, there are 7,000, quiet, faithful, unseen, under the circumstances. They see a correlation with this in Jesus' command to Peter, his promise to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 of that chapter says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I wonder how much faith it took Peter to remember this and think about it when everyone is scattered and they're being persecuted, many being crucified upside down, many having molten lead poured down their throats. How many times the church of God seeming to be on the ropes, God's not providing, he's not preserving, and yet always a whisper, a whisper of the faithfulness of God's people saying, we're here. Because God is faithful, he cannot change He will sustain and preserve his people. That's the message of the Old Testament in Elijah's life. He's the only one left. The rest of the hundred prophets flee as they might. They're gone. I'm the only one here speaking, and now I'm about to die. Everything's going to be lost. And God says, no, don't you get it? I can provide, and I can preserve. I think this is one opportunity for us to learn some of the same lessons and to ask ourselves what our perspective would have been. What is our perspective? Maybe the question could be something like this. How bleak can it get and God still be faithful? Do you have a a bar? Do you have a low bar that I'm, I'm fine and I'm confident with God and I'll walk with him so long as these things seem to be trending in the right direction? Or can it get bleak to the point where you look around and you don't see anyone else speaking? Can it get bleak to the point where you see persecution of the church? Can it get bleak to the point where those who seemingly are doing the righteous thing are rejected at every turn and have nothing? Is God still faithful? Can he still provide? Is he still preserving? I think the perspective that Elijah needed here is that it's never as bleak as it looks. God is in control. It's not up to him. It's not up to any ruler that the prophets of Baal and all of their dancing and praying is nothing to him because God has always been and will be in control. He provides and he preserves. And here's my guess. Some of us have been fortunate enough to live sort of the kind of insulated lives where everything's peachy keen. You just never doubt. You just never suffer. You just never got problems. You've lived in a world where like your church just stayed intact and there wasn't any conflict and your family's been faithful and everything's great. You may have been in a part of a generation or a part of a nation where more or less the laws lined up with the righteousness of God and you just thought, this is how it should be. Therefore, God is providing and he's preserving. But for the rest of real life, the rest of the real world, we can learn these lessons. We can say, what does it look like for God to provide in a not perfect world? 
What does it look like for us to trust God when things are not going our way? Maybe I'd say it like this. Are we aware of the temptation and the possibility to be fooled by a perspective of the world that says God is forgotten and God is God and, God, and he cannot, He's gone and He cannot provide? You see, we live in a world where we love news that is sensational. We, things, we want things that are crazy, and the crazier the better. The old adage, if it bleeds, it leads, is often the way that we are driven in our perspective of the world. So even amongst Christians who create content and love clickbaity kind of things, you know what rarely ever leads the stories? The quiet, whispering 7,000 faithful. You never ever once hear the stories of unbelievable old lady prayer group meets again. You very rarely hear the story of faithful Sunday school teacher cleans up after the kids again and as the boy walks out and he turns and he says, I love Jesus. That doesn't make the headlines, but it's happening everywhere. There are faithful elders in God's church. There are faithful disciplers of young women in God's church because he provides and he's preserving it's never as bleak as it can look. And I think oftentimes, and you could come at this from a million different postures, oftentimes we believe that a posture of panic is appropriate for a Christian. The reality is, is that it's not. You might say to yourself from one posture, I can't believe it, we got a panic. Did you know they took prayer out of schools? Did you know that the Supreme Court decisions used to be this? Praise God, now it's, it's one thing, but they used to be this. Did you know, and you can have a laundry list of things that essentially is the person communicating, it's time to panic. And on the flip side, you come from a different posture and you could say this. Did you know that the church is rife with abuse? Did you know that the church just cares more about money than about people? Did you know that the church gets it wrong all the time? Did you know that there are hypocrites in the church? Did you know that the Christians are the ones who are going to rejoice over Roe v. Wade, but they don't really care about people once they're alive? Did you know? And what's that person saying? They're saying, it's time to panic. And the reality is, hovering underneath and in and through and above all of this is a God who provides and he preserves. It's never as bleak as it can look. Did you know that in the global church across the world, though that in some ways the influence of Christianity is waning in the West, though I think when it comes to what I would call more closely aligned true Christianity, those who believe the Bible is the word of God and practice the sacraments in a way that they're meaningful and have church discipline and something like that, that's remained pretty steady. But in many ways, the public influence of Christianity in the West has declined over 100 years. And many people would say, it's time to panic. Did you know that at the same time, there are now more Christians on the continent of Africa than in the entire West at any point in the history of the West? Did you know that right now in the continent of Asia, there are more Christians confessing Jesus than in the West? Did you know that I, there will become a time when God will unveil his plan of provision and preserving and he'll say, I had 7,000, a perfect number who have remained faithful. Why? Because God has covenanted with his people. That's the story of the people of God. He will sustain this story in Elijah's life 
ought to have been a lesson to God's people. They missed it. But we have the privilege now, the honor now of reading through these words and saying, God, help us. We're not going to be perfect in this, but help us to learn these lessons. When the panic comes, let's try by God's Spirit to push it back. 